to see all your faces and to see old friends in distant places. And now we're off to the races. I don't have any more rhymes. Um, little housekeeping, just to say, uh, for those of you who are out on Zoom land, we are having a one day session today. And uh, it's really good crowd. There's like 26, 28 people here, as many as we've had in Zendo. And uh, we're sitting all day. Uh, and just for you, for those of you who are here, uh, let you know there's sign up sheets on the bulletin board, patio bulletin board for uh, practice discussion with Karen sometime. Uh, or Dokusan with me uh, this afternoon after work period. Uh, there'll be short, those will be short sessions because we only have about an hour and a half, but uh, invite you to sign up and come for a conversation and bring a question. Sort of bring yourself to some clarity about uh, your inquiry before you come in so that we can really get down to it. Thank you. So uh, for the last week, I'd been thinking about uh, a particular subject and I kept kind of circulating around uh, this topic for my talk today. Uh, and uh, Yesterday, several things came to mind and I read something and all of that cogitation went out the window and just, if it's important, it'll come back at some other, some other date. But um, I've changed direction and uh, it starts with remembering that uh, today, is the anniversary, the 77th anniversary of uh, the US bombing of Hiroshima. And a couple of days after that, the, also the atomic bombing of Nagasaki, uh, as I said, 77 years ago, August 6, 1945. And uh, in the immediate blast, um, 70,000 people were instantly incinerated. 70,000. Uh, and several hundred thousand more in the short-term and long-term aftermath. Uh, 
guess it was on the 50th anniversary of Hiroshima, I took part in a memorial in uh, at the Nevada nuclear test site in uh, outside of Las Vegas. And it was a uh, it was a religious reflection and ceremony and memorial. Uh, and one after another, uh, clergy people, wonderful people, uh, came to the stage and talked about how unthinkable this action was and questioned how anybody could do this. And when I came to the stage, I said, for me, obviously, it wasn't unthinkable because somebody thought of it. And that if any, my feeling was if any of us were in the circumstance of the people who made those decisions, uh, if we were really in their exact circumstance, uh, it's not realistic to assume what we would have decided. And uh, because it's in the nature of our mind, it's in the nature of a mind that creates a self and creates another. And because that is a habit that we have, uh, unless we address that habit directly, we have that capacity. We have the capacity to do things that people would like to say are unthinkable. So, We recognize that we continue to live in a dangerous time, in a dangerous moment, and maybe all moments in history are dangerous. Uh, on the nuclear front, uh, you know, the war that's raging in Ukraine uh, includes. Uh, battles that are taking place over nuclear plants or around nuclear plants in the Ukraine. And we don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, this is where Chernobyl still sits. Uh, and we have a moment of contention between the United States, Russia, China, And unthinkable things are happening, and they always have. So the other thing that spurred my thinking this morning was that I uh, 
came across a short piece by uh, Roshi Joan Halifax in the July issue of Lion's Roar. Uh, it's just a short commentary called Practice for a World at Risk. And a sentence really jumped out at me. Uh, this is the sentence. The basic vows we take as Buddhist remind us that there is no other. And I think when we look through the, the teachings of Martin Luther King, we find how he put this in his own words. Uh, all of life is interrelated. The agony of the poor impoverishes the rich. The betterment of the poor enriches the rich. We are inevitably our brother's keeper because we are our brother's brother. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So those are, those are some helpful words. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about emptiness and no self. And we take up the practice of no self. But, you know, as we've, as we remember, and as we've been hearing, uh, Sojin Roshi's teaching was constantly inviting us to look at things from the other side. If we put forth one proposition, to look at the, the other side of that proposition. Uh, so, if there's no self, let's consider there's no other. There is no other, there are no others. Uh, and uh, it's all very well to practice the way of no self. And it's important, it's essential to do that because uh, by, by habit and delusion, we are all, we fall into self-centeredness. Uh, but a lot of the problems that arise in our world uh, arise directly because we also unthinkingly carry the notion that there is another, that there are others. And maybe in a practical sense, it's more dangerous than our affiliation to the idea of, uh, of no self. To think that there are others uh, seems to give us permission to do uh, all kinds of things. So we have Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We have the Holocaust. We have the war that's raging in the Ukraine. 
we have a 60-year civil war going on in uh, Myanmar. We have the genocide of Native Americans. We have uh, the history of enslavement in this country and all kinds of things around the world, all of which are premised on this compelling idea that there is another. And that those others are less than myself. And in fact, we, we, whether we know it or not, we also, we all often have the delusion, delusion that um, myself is the only thing that's real. And, you know, I had actually had a, a friend, uh, my, one of my oldest and closest friends, uh, who took up Zazen about the age of 50. And somewhere into his practice, he confessed, you know, I never really understood there were other people out there. I'm, I'm so happy that he could have that perception about himself. And also so sad that one could live that way, which is possible. And many people do. So when we think about, there's a couple teachings that come to mind. Uh, I think about also what I take as a uh, for me, a really pivotal teaching of Sojin Roshi's, which is not to treat anything like an object, not to treat anything or anyone like an object. So he was, when he instructed that often, he would hold up his cup of tea and say, that's why we hold this cup with two hands. Ah, very refreshing. And somehow the water in this cup is now part of my body. It's not other, it's now part of me. But we hold it with two hands out of respect. Um, and it's, it is somewhat easier perhaps to respect a cup than to respect someone we disagree with or someone who has hurt us. Uh, that's, that's really harder practice. How do we hold that person as if They were a part of us, you know, and this is 
their practices around us, the practice of, of Tonglen, which comes to us via, yes? There seems to be an excessive flame on that candle. Is that just my eyesight? No, it's actually, it's actually large, but um, my experience is it'll probably take care of itself. Uh, or it'll burn the whole place down. Hey, the, fire, the fire extinguishers are just. Uh, <laughs> I think the back of the, yeah, thanks for noticing, Heiko. The back of the candle, the wax uh, wall, it was dripping down and being caught here. So it's safe, but a um, little visual entertainment to account right. your audio entertainment. Right. And teaching. <laughs> Thank you for your attention. <laughs> um, So it's not dripping up onto the altar. Oh. <laughs> right. Uh, and if the place burns down, just be very careful to enter. It's hard to get out the doors, so, so be careful. You can always climb out the windows, I suppose. Um, so the practice of Tonglen, uh, giving and taking, is a practice of exchanging self and other, uh, moving towards really the non-separation of self and other. Uh, but that separation happens really, really quickly. For me, the practice that I return to or the, the teaching that I return to uh, is from the sixth ancestor, of Zen, Huineng, uh, who is the uh, reputed author of the Platform Sutra, which may or not may or may not be actually the case, but it's ascribed to him, and uh, we associate it with him. We associate the teachings with him, uh, and in that sutra, there's a there's what he calls a formless ordination ceremony, which is very much like our Jukai and our priest ordination. It's the same, it's the same form. And it begins like, like our ordination and like our monthly bodhisattva ceremony with uh, well, it includes the bodhisattva vows, which are a part of it. So we chant the Bodhisattva, we'll chant the Bodhisattva vows at the end of this, at the end of this talk, right? Uh, beings are numberless, I vow to awaken with them is the, is the, uh, the version that we, that we use. And other places, often they would say beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Uh, uh, but the Sixth Ancestors version was a little different, and it speaks to what I'm talking about. He said, uh, sentient beings of my mind are numberless. I vow to save them all. So sentient, first of all, it's pointing internally that this notion of self and other 
is a construction of our mind, that in fact, everything is a construction of our mind. And the sentient beings of my mind are what are often running the show. And uh, so these sentient beings of my mind are, you know, the beings of the, the uh, Buddhist cosmology, the six, you know, the six realms, the uh, human realm, the deva or god realm, the hell realm, the animal realm, the hungry ghost realm, and the fighting demons. These are all you can recognize as a sort of archetypal expressions of our uh, deluded nature. Uh, and they're kind of, it's kind of an outline of the infinite uh, stations that we may enact in our lives. There's, you know, we also have like the, the teenager realm uh, or the, the uh, unruly two-year-old realm. Uh, all of those, we, those are alive in us, right? And the Zen idea of rebirth uh, doesn't, is not something that transpires over three lifetimes, you know, over sort of past to present to future. The Zen idea of rebirth, as we've heard from many of our teachers, is like we're reborn moment by moment, you know, and if someone insults you, you may be reborn as a as a uh, as a fighting demon. As you may be reborn in hell, you may be devastated emotionally, be a kind of an emotional puddle. Uh, you know, if somebody, all of the all of the ways that we interact with with beings and with the environment. Uh, potentially give birth to these sentient beings of one's mind. Uh, and to save them means really just to take care of them, to meet them as part of oneself, not as other not as something that you have to get rid of. You know, if you're angry, you're angry, you know, and don't push that away. But you have to treat it as, I think in the, the model of uh, a skillful parent and child, you meet the child, a parent meets the child with presumably unconditional love, no matter what is arising. And so if we can, if we recognize the sentient beings of our mind as not other, you know, not something to get rid of in ourselves, but something that is part of the entirety of who we are, then we can take care of it in an appropriate way.
and we have to find out how what that way is that's you know trial and error so that's one aspect of sentient beings of my mind the other aspect of sentient beings of my mind to me this is my gloss on this uh is that right now everybody i'm looking at on screen everybody i'm looking at in the zendo is a sentient being of my mind and that's the world right now right this moment that is my whole world and from your perspective whatever you are seeing whoever you are seeing is your whole world and there is no other there's no other world there are no other people and this is as i said there's no other that there's no other is at least in my thinking in the last couple of days somehow seems it seems very powerful and it seems uh very much to the point whereas no self we can get lost in abstraction no other tends to be the feeling of otherness is really in uh there's a great sense of particularity to it and that's what we work with you know so that there's no self and there's no other is to open the door of oneness and you know the most effective way we have of opening the door of oneness is zazen that's what we're doing today and that's what we return to in this room and gradually it permeates our whole life so that we can turn to it at any moment and we may not necessarily have some immediate wonderful experience of oneness but as we sit things get quieter things get quieter inside things get quieter outside and we begin we we can we can feel there's no inside outside is that train that whistle that i'm hearing is that outside you know uh and just to be able to open to that reality of oneness is the opportunity that we cultivate in zazen which is so fortunate there's just seeing there's just hearing 
is just sitting on the banks of the stream and being soothed by the flow of thoughts, just as flow. This is so, such a fortunate practice that we, that we have. So it's good to look at what are the what are all the ways in which we create another and what's it like also in the moments when we just when that falls away not that we do something to make it go away but just to allow it you know as we read in the session directions that you know last thing carol said was drop body and mind you know that's not some necessarily some great mystical experience where everything disappears it's just the sense that we have of being connected in oneness and when we begin to feel that connection in a small thing like you know even like this cup of water the practice is to let those boundaries widen let those boundaries widen to include and and to notice where am I creating another? And just to confess to you, I do it all the time, you know? Uh, and I'm not sure I've ever met anyone who was beyond that. That's part of our habitual growing up, but we can recognize that propensity we can consciously set it aside. And we also have moments when it's just not there. And to really savor those moments uh, and to savor that the ease of those moments, even though the next moment may be really difficult. And again, that happens in our zazen as well. The, uh, and it happens from period to period. Some periods are just really so centering and relaxing and easeful, and other periods are uh, one cannot find any ease or relaxation in one's body, and it's hard. But we just sit there with that. Uh, we don't, we just accept that as the way things are uh, and find a way to stay for that moment, not to stay for good, but just to stay for that moment with the recognition that 
that moment will move. And the circumstances we're experiencing will change. And I think that gradually, there's a, you know, there's this distinction in, in Zen between the sudden school and the gradual school. But uh, we, we belong to the sudden school. But as all of you know, uh, sudden is a relative, is a relative descriptor and sudden can take a really long time to unfold. <laughs> so you should be patient with yourself. Uh, and I think that, you know, most everybody in this room has been practicing for a while. And I think if you look internally, you can appreciate the things that have shifted in you and the ways that your mind, uh, which still has moments of grasping and clinging, also has moments of release. Release and freedom. And to share that with those around us, that's, that's our bodhisattva experience. Uh -huh not to save them by necessarily by intervening and doing some kind of radical activity, but actually to point the way that one can be truly oneself. That, that if there is no other, uh, the way our teachers or ourselves can work with our minds is the way that anyone can work with their mind. And we open that door for people. And we want to keep opening that door. That's, that's why we're here in this, in this Zendo. That's why we're here in this, in this practice today. So I think I'm going to stop there and uh, leave time for questions and, and comments. Uh, let me put up the participants so that uh, people can in, in Zoom land can raise their digital hand and people in the Zendo can raise their hands. And I see Lori. There is no other, but when you think about your friend, he he actually had to learn that there is an other. Yes. And you know, there's another way, not just that the other is less than there's a, the other is a huge threat, and that is how we get these Right. That's so it's, it's yeah. a big mystery. And you know, when I first heard the phrase mind only, to me it sounds like there's only me. You know, it's not it's not that there's no me, it's like there's only me and my head, what's in my head. So I mean, it's a huge mystery. Anyway, just... Yeah. Can you did you hear that in in out there? Yes. Good.
Good. Um, some right. Did not. Some, some are given oh, well, Lori was saying there is a, you know, a, a conundrum in what I was saying when I, I related the story about my friend who uh, his perception, which was a wake up call for him, was that there were other beings out there. Uh, and so that's the this is this is where I think this instruction constantly to look to the other side is really helpful uh, because he was fixated on the self and he was aware of this self fixation people who are fixated on the others are operating from their own fixation on self and self-protection and uh you know so in order to create another in and i think maybe there's different senses of others there's the other that is no different than myself which is what my friend was talking about and there are uh, there's the other that is less than human which is what we see in in all of the 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 horrors of propaganda that we've seen over the over the centuries the depiction of uh beings who are less than human and therefore can be treated uh they can be disposed of used enslaved killed because they're not like oneself so i think these i think what you're pointing to is there's there's the different dimensions there's different ways of looking at other situationally. Sue Osher. Thank you. I keep coming back to geopolitics, not that I know much about it, but the limited resources um, exist, the division and uh, income disparity are huge. Um, and I really appreciate your view on there is no other. We're totally interdependent. How do we hold like Ukrainian grain and limited water in the Middle East? How and we're very fortunate in our geopolitical realities in this country. How do we hold there is no other with you know, I want to get what's mine, or I want to survive at least. Well, I think that the fallacy in in, in your last sentence is get what's mine, uh, because nothing belongs to one, and nothing belongs to people within kind of the, if you will, artificial boundaries of a country. Uh, but we're quite happy to extract the resources of other of other places or even our own country. Um, and if we think that all beings deserve an equal opportunity to thrive, then that creates a different that might create a different political and reality than the one that we're operating in, which is the one with the most money and the most guns 
can extract the most resources for themselves, which is often the case. Uh, and in order to do that means we have in, to do that means consciously or unconsciously we we have to relegate people to the position of other. But if we think of them as ourselves, then uh, something, a different mind can arise. You know, I, I know my experience, uh, uh, particularly after, really I started doing a lot of traveling uh, while my kids were young. And, you know, the idea of, of Sylvia and Alex, the images of them were so vivid in my mind. And when I would go to other countries, uh, particularly poor countries, and I would see the children, it's like, right, these are children, these are, these are just like my children. And my heart opened to them, I really wanted to do something so that their opportunities were going to be uh, akin to the opportunities that were available to my children. Uh, that's, that's a kind of example of the perception of no other. Uh, Dean. Thank you, Alan. <clears throat> I'm a little nervous uh, asking this. I've been thinking about this othering thing for quite a while. And um, I feel like I agree with you, it's historical. Um, you know, slave owners put an entire group of people in a position. They othered this group of people and you need to be this and live like this because that's what I need you to be. And um, one of what something that's come up here that's made me think about othering is that at one point you know when we were talking about the cultural awareness class at one point there was talk about it being mandatory and something about that felt very uncomfortable to me mm -hmm. and um what suddenly there, there's a there's a documentary I've watched several times. It's called uh, Reconstruction After the Civil War. And um, what I, I felt was that this whole concept of mandatory meant that the people who maybe weren't going to take it, or I felt that that was a huge weight of other people, but for some reason, because it's, it's coming down on the politically correct side, which you know, I think there's a, a, a lot of value in the politically correct side of things. But it, it, it was hard for me, and, and I sort of feel like it's carried further, further, even though it's not mandatory, there's this very strong suggestion that people need to do that. And it brought me back to what you said in the beginning that, that Roshi Joan Halifax said about that our basic view, Buddhist vows teach us to not other. And so I guess with myself, 
I'm trying to figure out how, as someone who, who sees my side, myself on one side of things as far as social justice and all, but how when there is a social justice topic, but it comes down to if you don't do this, then you're not supporting me when I've seen the similarities with, with othering. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I guess I'd like you to address the othering that happens because we have a strong, we, and I do mean the progressives have a strong difference from conservatives and how can what we know to be true and right, how do we deal with that when it also can be othering? Right. I, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And just to say, uh, and I'm, I'm going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but uh, I was not comfortable or advocating a mandated uh, training. And at the same time, I really want to encourage it. Um, I think that uh, I mean, I, it's interesting because I know Roshi Joan and we, we talk about this a lot and I see how this has evolved in her Sangha. Uh, yes, if you really understand uh, the Dharma, everything that you need is in there. Uh, but, you know, the reason, say, that we have an ethics policy is and the reason you have commentary in any religious tradition on the basic tenets is because is to help people understand you know so we have we have an ethics policy at bcc because uh in our community and other communities we feel that certain kinds of activities had to be spelled out in particular even though if you're really paying attention, it's all there in the precepts. You know, there should be no need for anything beyond the precepts, but it seems because we are foolish humans, uh, we need uh, clearer guidances and instructions. So I think in terms of, uh, you know, what you're, what you're raising, uh, around othering it the idea and you know actually how do we meet people that we really disagree with you know so that's not it is talking about whatever disagreements are, i don't think they're very major in this in this sangha uh but there may be things that that we disagree about uh in certainly in our country, there are some vast things that we disagree with. How do we see? This is really hard. You know, how do I see those people who were storming the Congress on on January sixth, uh, twenty one? How do I not other them? That's a real personal challenge for me. And, you know, I think my, at least my stated intention is 
for myself is to be able to listen and talk to anyone. And sometimes if I can't, then I have to kind of step back and look at what's going on internally. So that's, that's my, that's my practice intention. Um, and I think that uh, the, the idea of say, of the kind of training that we're uh, going to engage in is to open doors rather than to lay down lines and create walls. And, you know, there's no guarantee that's going to work entirely. And there's no guarantee that, uh, I, I hope that it's not a, an othering process, but I would also hope that people would have faith in the opportunity to try something to see how it works for them. That's the best it can do, just to see how it works. And if it doesn't work, then walk away. That's okay. Uh, but I don't think I don't think we can come to a conclusive response. But we tr we're trying to cultivate. You know, uh, it's like substituting substituting uh, one idea of othering perhaps for another. That's what it can feel like, and. Uh, Let's see if there's a way that we cannot do that. But I appreciate your question. And we're not done. Yeah, Ross. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for your talk this morning. Um, you said that it's really difficult with people uh, in the othering process and not, not othering them because they talk back. They talk back. Whereas this Makugio is less likely to talk back unless I found it so-called incorrectly. And then, then it's saying, stop hitting me so hard. Um, you referenced uh, Zazen in periods of comfort and ease and wanting to savor that uh, experience. While other periods, and I don't think you raised your voice, but I heard it was like an exclamation point, all other periods. So I would be reflecting on my attachment to those comfortable, easeful periods of Zazen and those other periods of Zazen, which aren't so. So how do we not other other periods of Zazen and just have it as one continuous period? Well, I think Sojin talked about that a lot. And I, I, I think You know, there are a lot of things that one heard early in one's practice that seemed not to make sense or it's like, well, it's good for you if you can do that, you know, but uh, if you trust, I trust the practice you know, and trusting the practice, I come around to uh, some of the things that he had said, for example, uh, you know, like, uh, when I started for the first number of years, if, if it was a day of session, it's like there was some buildup of anxiety, you know, the day before. 
you know, and it's like, oh, so she knew it. And uh, Zotun would always say, well, I don't think about it. I just, you know, it's just, okay, it's a sheen. I just do it. And it's like, how does he do that? But actually, I don't think about it anymore. It's like, Sashin, you know, it's okay. That's what we're doing today. And with Zazen, I think that to be able to include whatever it is we're experiencing, that is the whole arc. To me, that's the arc of Zazen and uh, hopefully becomes the arc of our life. And so, you know, if I have a period when I'm restless or uncomfortable, uh, it's like, that's just another period of Zazen. It's, it's, it doesn't establish something that is going to continue or it's not, and nor is it necessarily going to disappear in that period. But I do feel like in Seshin, I think we can experience, you know, we're, sometimes our legs hurt. Uh, and then we do Kinyin. And then we sit down and, and often when we sit down again, it's like, the, at least initially, it's like, ah, you know, and it's like, then your legs may start to hurt again. But it's like we start fresh, you allow for the freshness of each period and meaning allowing for whatever is going to come up. So we can like favor certain friendships because of affinities and other friendships or acquaintances maybe we don't favor so much, but there's still an acceptance in being with them uh, fully as much as we can just with that period of Zazen that's a little difficult for us. Yeah, and it's also, I, I think it's, it's like that that freshness when you sit down, even if it's a relationship that's that's complicated or fraught, uh, when you see that person, if it, you know, that person's not a stranger, that person is someone that, you know, if you're in each other's world and you've been in each other's world for a long time, there is some really palpable, significant connection. And just in that initial moment, you can, if you touch that, it's really helpful. It helps you remember where there's a oneness. Favor the connection. Yeah. And then, you know, you talk and the disagreements may arise, you know, but the connection doesn't go away either. That's, that's the way I think about it. Uh, Preston, and we're going to have to end in a couple. I don't, yeah, go ahead. I'm, uh, I'm guessing that all of us have friends or family who are experiencing poverty or incarceration or domestic violence or some other kinds of oppression or deprivation. And I feel it's easier to see how their suffering is, is our suffering. But I think that um, you and, and Martin Luther King were also speaking to like a wider sense in which even people we are unfamiliar with, whether there are uh, neighbors or across the world, their pain is, um, it also impoverishes us. And so I'm wondering if you can say something about how that is. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that we have, we literally have practices for that. I mean, the, 
Tonglen practice, metta practice, uh, includes those who we, those who are unseen, those who, are, who we don't know. Um, and I think we should always be aware that those people, that they're, they're there and that what we do affects them. Uh, and I think it also behooves us to educate ourselves, to be really interest, interested in the world, interested in what's, uh, in how people are living and how our life impacts them. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's mysterious. Sometimes it's really, it's quite material, you know, it's, uh, we're taking this resource and they're, they're not having that or they're being, you know, uh, paid exploitative wages, etc. But sometimes the effect is, uh, excuse me, is less perceptible. You know, the effect of our zazen on the world is, is mysterious and not immediately perceptible. But again, I have, I have faith in it. You know, I have faith that how we are working with ourselves, how we are opening, uh, has some, uh, it affects everybody that we contact. And that effect spreads out in, in ripples. So, you know, that may be the best that we can do. Uh, Gimpo, and then I think we're going to have to end. I just remember before I left, Sojin said something really unusual, which was he said that Buddha is everyone else. And I never really understood that. What, what do you make of that? Uh, I, what I make of it is that uh, I think he was pointing to the fact that uh, we should really learn from everyone that everyone, that everyone is our teacher and everyone is teaching us something, uh, you know, uh, priceless. Uh, and we often don't value people that way. In fact, you know, we, we can dismiss them as we disagree with them or dislike them or whatever, but there's, uh, it's like it's parallel to the the expression that you find in in Tibetan Buddhism that uh, given the infinite uh, amount of of time and rebirth, everyone has been every being has been our mother or father, and so to treat to treat them with the respect of a parent, treat them with the respect of a Buddha, I think that's what he was pointing to. And some of us need to remind ourselves of that frequently because uh, I can be prone to forget that. I have to, that's a practice to remember it until one is completely awakened and has cut away everything 
and that's all that's left, in which case you just respond to everybody as a Buddha. And uh, that's within our capacity. Take care. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Surpassable. Wow.